0: So I'm here tonight uh, not only to accept uh, surprise party gifts, I'm here to talk about my book, Seculosity, which I'm not yet tired of talking about, though I'm getting close, I'm getting close. Um, Just kidding. Well, excuse me. Um, I was looking, as I was trying to prepare this talk, and there'll be some stuff that people have heard because there's no way to talk about Seculosity without, for example, defining the word. trying to find something fresh, and I was researching, um, you know, I, I've, I've been telling people that seculosity is sort of my answer, or my attempt to answer the question of why uh, it is we are so increasingly anxious, lonely, divided, and exhausted. But I think I got it wrong, because I, already, I found out everything that's wrong with modern society. The Guardian, God bless that organization, because they reviewed my book in a nice way, um, Praise people who were here earlier today. Um, they, they solved what's, everything that's wrong with modern society is soylent. Do you know what soylent is? Some of you know what soylent is. It's a drink. It's a meal replacement drink. And uh, it was created by a guy named Rob Reinhart when he was 24 because he thought food was an outdated concept. For Rob, chewing took too much time and kitchens were terrifying. He famously wrote on his blog, he says, I think it was a bit presumptuous for the architect to assume that I wanted a kitchen with my apartment and to make me pay for it. My home is a place of peace. I don't want to live with red-hot heating elements and razor-sharp knives. So he invented Soylent. A meal you could swig from a bottle without using any razor-sharp knives. A meal that would allow you to spend less time living and more time being productive. And because we live in a world that's absolutely obsessed with efficiency and productivity, the venture capital money rolled in. Despite the fact that, as you know, the the product's name is inspired by that 1973 Charlton Heston movie. Post-apocalyptic sci-fi thriller called Soylent Green where humans eat a foodstuff made out of other people. Uh, the um, great, the, the, the person who wrote this article for The Guardian, she said, uh, she concluded by saying, after testing it, she said, Reader, it tasted like nostril. <laughs> I love that. It tasted like nostril. She could have used any other thing, but that's the great one she, she used. So again, uh, I'm only sort of I'm, I'm half joking because soylent to, in, is kind of a great expression of seculosity. It's this great fruit of our obsession with productivity, of what Alfie Cohn talked today, today about how, how we value people only according to what they do rather than who they are, and that to, to in, in, if that's the case, then we should all be drinking soylent in order to maximize and optimize our schedules. This is uh, a very religious practice, clearly, uh, because it, it, it 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 is a kind of a, if the justifying story of your life is how much you're able to produce, well then you better minimize your time doing anything that's not productive. And the only thing that food is really producing is, you know, waste. And so let's all drink Soylent. And wouldn't it have been funny if I'd planned ahead enough that instead of actually having a great dinner tonight, we just went downstairs and it was nothing but Soylent? (laughs) I think that'd be funny, but I don't think the bathrooms could handle it, frankly. (laughs) We've already given them a run for their money. There's been so much potty humor at this conference. I love it. so when I've been talking about secularity, that's where one of the places I start. But I, I kind of, we can go back a little ways to one of the things that inspired the book. Maybe some of you were here a few years ago when Tim Crider spoke, the uh, and, uh, New York Times columnist, and he got up here to speak about anxiety, or that's what I asked him to speak about, but he, what he wanted to speak about was atheism, which was okay, you know, because um, he's so incredibly charming, and is so self-deprecating, and not at all, I, I thought... Um, self-righteous but one of the things he said is that the anxiety that we are experiencing today has something to do with the fact that uh, conventional religion has sort of retreated into the background for many more and more people and yet every alternate answer every alternate system we're trying to replace it with seems to um, be making it uh, us worse be generating extra anxiety and uh, Russell Brand said the same thing in an uh, interview with The Guardian <laughs> a few months later. And this is what I thought, okay, I've got to write this book. He said to an interviewer, he said, there's an ongoing sense that this, that this modern life isn't working. There was an important job that religion was doing, but because of X, Y, or Z, we have possibly quite rightly rejected it. But the way we see the world now seems to exclude us from a life that has meaning And I don't think pop culture can fill that gap anymore. I don't think art can do it anymore. Things are getting too serious. People need to be able to connect with something that is essential and beautiful and valuable and true. So my name for all of the things we're trying to put in that place that Russell is talking about, that we're trying to summon up something that's essential and beautiful and valuable and true, perhaps in beautiful ways and creative ways, but in also ways that don't seem to be delivering on that promise. My, that, my term is seculosity, and it's simply a combination of the words secular and religiosity, and it's a, it's a catch-all for religious feeling, sentiment, uh, uh, energy that is directed at earthly rather than heavenly objects. I didn't want to call it religiosity or just misplaced religiosity because I think there's something different And people, by the way, hate being told that they're religious when they really have done everything they can to say that they're not. And so I didn't want to be patronizing, but I also wanted to acknowledge that from where I was sitting, as a person who had been exposed to both really wonderful expressions of religion and really terrible ones, what I was seeing around me in the culture and in myself especially, was a culture that was increasingly resembling the worst kinds of religions and the most toxic forms of them that I had experienced. You guys know what we're talking about, and so the thesis of the book is really that the problem today is not that we are not religious enough, but that we're too religious about too many things. So I'm going to talk to you tonight about work, because we're in New York City, and I wanted to read this part of the book so badly, but I've only been in places where it never snows. So... It's not snowing, but we did have a torrential rainstorm earlier today. So this is New York City, the epicenter of what we could politely call workaholism, what the Atlantic Monthly calls workism. Um, and the way I want to, I the section I want to read is the section on snow days. We need to talk about snow days. Because for all they cover up, snowstorms also expose a number of our less than fluffy Pieties. My own childhood snow days are cloaked in soft-focus wonder, a break from routine and school, a time to sled and build forts and drink hot chocolate. I think of Calvin and Hobbes. I think of Riley's Minnesota memories in Pixar's Inside Out. You know, by the way, I asked my mother about our uh, snow days when I was a kid, and she said, you would go out for about 10 minutes, and then you'd cry and come inside. And in my mind, I was out for three hours building forts, so who knows? Uh, My own experience with my own children on snow days leads me to believe that my mother is actually remembering correctly. Anyway, um, here we go. The snow days of my childhood bear little resemblance to the snow days of adulthood. There's still beauty to behold and fun to be had, walks to be taken, new recipes to be attempted. But the good parts dissipate far more quickly, especially if you have small children. In a hurricane or a tornado, fear often takes center stage. The potential for physical damage to your domicile justifies the attention we divert from other areas of life, pardoning the inconvenience. In a snowstorm, however, once you've made it indoors, unless you live in Siberia or upstate New York, safety is rarely a factor. You're gonna make it out okay. Snowflakes mainly represent an affront to our sense of control, a disruption of plans, and unpleasant to the extent that those plans have become enshrined. As such, they shine an uncomfortable light on our fragile sense of enoughness. Writer David Dudley, writing in the New York Times, puts it this way He says, The snow cares not for your deadlines, your happy hour plans, your scheduled C section. It wants only to fall on the ground and lie there, and it wants you to, too. (laughs) On the flip side, I've been struck by how often the word freedom gets mentioned in conjunction with catastrophic weather. Have you noticed this? Freedom from what exactly is unclear, but presumably from some sort of accusation related to our to-do list. Make no mistake. The freedom to reconceive a day according to instinct and opportunity rather than obligation feels pretty good because in a proper blizzard no one is getting any work done which means no one is going to overtake us in whatever race we're running they are snowed in too a blizzard is one of a small handful of circumstances that can absolve a person who's trying to justify themselves by their occupation that can melt the guilt of idleness, pun intended. At least it should be. As technology has changed how we work, more and more of us refuse to accept the meteorological permission to relax. Instead, we scoff at the very thing that more often than not we've been vocally pining for. As long as we have an internet connection, the wheels can keep turning. And even when the power lines go down, every neighborhood I've been in contains that one retiree who has to shovel his driveway every five minutes. That one young lady who can't not get her run in, opting to go full Rocky, regardless of how ridiculous or dangerous it looks. If the voice from the heavens has shouted stop, but we can't, No doubt it's because the actual voice we're heeding is that of our real boss, the slave driver within. The true target of our religiosity comes into focus. In such instances, it could be that we're dealing not so much with an addiction to productivity or performancism as a fear of sitting still. Anything but silence our souls and bodies cry out. Alas, not even our devices can fully restore our sense of frantic autonomy because social media feeds slow to a crawl during a blizzard. There are only so many fireside snaps or accumulation time lapses a person can tolerate. And yet maybe that's why the blizzard remains the best natural disaster of all, spiritually speaking. The snow falls everywhere irrespective of our plans and designs yet remains stunningly personal burrowing into our eyes and hair and nostrils it puts our attempts to assert ourselves in perspective to those who like sledding the storm ushers in an occasion for joy and to those who are tired or guilt-ridden it brings rest and that's not all Anyone who has taken a walk or a drive on the day after a massive snowfall will notice how 16 inches of fresh blanketing looks most beautiful in the places we know to be ugliest. Parking lots and strip malls, empty lots and cracked sidewalks, trash heaps and construction sites transform from eyesores into pockets of enchanted calm no other catastrophe possesses such redeeming magic. No other disaster leaves everything in its wake more beautiful rather than less. Barring Calvary, that is. And scene, that's that scene. So you can, you can, you can thank you. And it's true. And Derek Thompson put it in the Atlantic Monthly. He said it brilliantly. He said, Work has clearly evolved from a means of material production to a means of identity production. And it's not just for college educated people, it's pretty much all down the line if you really burrow into the statistics. So we may be sleeping in on Sunday mornings in greater numbers, but we've never been more pious, from what I can tell. Religious observance hasn't faded apace secularization so much as migrated. The marketplace in replacement religion is booming. We're seldom not in church. The Harvard researcher Casper Cooley uh, was quoted in an article about CrossFit being my new church that Connor Gwynn wrote about so well. He says this researcher who says that meaning making is a growth industry. If you wanna make some money, if you wanna sell someone something, Make them feel like it's giving them purpose. Make those razor blades stand as a, a bulwark against toxic masculinity. Not that, you know, that's, that's good, I guess. But when it starts to be a profiteering thing, you get, you get it's very confusing. Writing in the Paris Review, Megan O'Geebelin, who we interviewed in the Faith and Doubt issue, and for my money, she's probably the best essayist outside of who we're going to hear tomorrow, Leslie Jameson, writing right now. She wrote this, and she's a person who, came, who went to Moody, Moody Bible Institute. If you know anything about that, that's, a, that's not a, uh, it's a, it's a pretty strict place. Hardcore might be a nice way to say it. Um, She's traveled from Moody Bible Institute to having a regular column in the Paris Review. So it's, it's, she's an interesting person. And she says this, she says, as more and more Americans leave behind religious belief, instead of becoming purely rational agents, we increasingly displace those religious enthusiasms onto other things. In like two sentences there, in one sentence actually, she sort of sums up the book, but she doesn't actually get into the, the meat of it. But what do I mean by Religion. So those of you who haven't read the book, um, this is a, a, an elastic word, right? Religion. It's sometimes a dirty word. If, if, if we take the fact that so many people say I'm spiritual but not religious, there's something about the word religious that, we, that, that has a, what, what did Jeff Mallinson said, the word religious has been consigned to secular hell. I think he's right about that, by the way. I would say for the purposes of this talk and purposes of this book that our religion is simply what we lean on to tell us we're okay that our lives matter. It's another name for all the ladders we spend our days climbing towards some dream of wholeness. Our religion refers to our preferred guilt management system and everyone's got one because everyone is walking around with a lot of guilt just by nature of, of, of being in relationships with other people. Our small R religion is simply the justifying story of our life It's what we rely on, not just for meaning, or hope, or community, but enoughness. Because listen carefully, and you will hear that word enough everywhere, especially when it comes to the anxiety, loneliness, exhaustion, and division that plague our moment to such tragic and escalating proportions. You'll hear about people scrambling to be successful enough, happy enough, thin enough, wealthy enough, influential enough, desired enough, charitable enough, woke enough, good enough. Because we believe instinctually that were we to reach some benchmark in our minds, then value, vindication, and love would be ours. That if we got enough, we would be enough. David Brooks has been on a bit of a tear recently, no matter what, I don't know what you think of him, but he's got this new book called The Second Mountain, and he wrote a viral op-ed that went out called Five Lies the Culture Tells Us. And one thing he's talked about is how meritocracy has been so twisted in our lives. He says, the message of the meritocracy is that you are what you accomplish. This is what Alfie was talking about today. The false promise of meritocracy is that you can earn dignity by attaching yourself to prestigious brands. The emotion of meritocracy is conditional love, that if you perform well, people will love you. He goes further. He says, the sociology of meritocracy is that society is organized around a set of inner rings with the high achievers inside and everyone else further out. The anthropology of the meritocracy is that you are not a soul to be saved, but a set of skills to be maximized. No wonder it's so hard to be a young adult today. It's back to me, because this is the great wrinkle, and it's one that every wisdom tradition lays plain, but you don't need a book or a Bible or scripture to tell you, or a guru to tell you this. No matter how close we get or how much we achieve, we never quite arrive at enough, or what religious folks would call righteous. Our lives attest that the threshold does not exist, at least not where sinful human beings are concerned, or finite, limited human beings, whatever word you can hear. Instead, as Will Storr, the great British journalist, says, he says, people are suffering and dying under the torture of the fantasy self they're failing to become. That is what a culture of seculosity inculcates in you and me. Why is it that we're more fixated on righteousness, on enoughness than any time in recent memory? Well, I don't quite know, and I don't know if that's even true. But I know that at the risk of gross oversimplification, for centuries we relied on capital R religion to tell us we're okay. Clergy revealed what true righteousness looks like, but they also provided us a place to go with our guilt and shame. Stephen Paulson, who many of us have heard speak from this spot, he, 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 saw, he said, clergy, w- what they should be, are, are your local forgiveness person. They're your hope dealer. I think Sarah Conan has actually a shirt that says hope dealer on it. Um, I love it. Uh, for more and more people, though, in the modern world that no longer that local forgiveness person, either they've been so branded as the opposite and they've been thrown into secular hell, or there's been so much baggage from their own personal experience of some sort of uh, toxic version of this that it's no longer an available or advisable option. Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor predicted that the further we retreat from a shared religion, the more contenders would emerge to harness our spiritual energy. He called this the Nova effect likening it to an explosion of religious pluralism. And I talk about that in the book. That's what the book is basically about. And I try to talk about the actual mechanics of it in ways that I think are interesting and also expose a lot about myself, an uncomfortable amount. But uh, as I told someone, I said, I, I think that stranger stuff is coming. Like a lot stranger stuff is coming. But I'm just gonna update you on a few of the things that have come out since I wrote the book. After that, CrossFit article dropped, and then we have Soylent being marketed to you. Andrew Sullivan, December 7th, he said that the the need for our meaning hasn't gone away, but without Christianity, the yearning looks to politics for satisfaction. And I can't tell you, having worked with college students for now for the 10 years, that the totalizing sto- political narrative is absolutely intoxicating in a way that the, re- that the religious narrative simply isn't. Because it, is, it, it in, imbues life with a lot of drama and purpose and a political lens uh, tells a person that not only it not only explains everything that's going on in life but that it can fix everything in life. It's actually a very dangerous place to be because it can't. Um... Sullivan says that these religious impulses were once anchored in and tamed by Christianity you now find expression in various political cults, but like almost all new cultish impulses, they demand a total and immediate commitment to save the world. They are filling the void that Christianity once owned, but without any of the wisdom and culture and restraint that Christianity once provided. Now, you can disagree with that Christianity ever provided any restraint, and I happen to believe it did. Uh, at least if forgiveness was even theoretically on the horizon as something that was important, then uh, maybe it was contributing something of a great, great importance. But you cannot deny that um, the, the, the total and immediate commitment to save the world is something that sets people into tribes that will only clash with each other. Then, like right before the thing hit, right before the, 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 the book came out, the college admissions scandal. It was like this great gimme, you know, it was like, you know, thank you, Lori Laughlin, Aunt Becky. Um, it revealed that to more and more of us, the college admissions process represents the ultimate measure of personal and social value. What some would call upper middle class righteousness. Didn't you hear Alfie today when he said when he was talking about we were using grades to control our children so they would get into the to the college of my I mean your choice? It was I was like perfect, I loved it. I can't wait to watch the tape. An acceptance letter to the right college constitutes a judgment of near religious significance. This helps explain why someone might commit felonies to circumvent a university's front door. And actions like this reflect a society in which success, not goodness, has become our highest virtue. And maybe it always has. I was talking to one of our board members, Scott Johnson, the guy who's a lot smarter than I am about these things. And he said, Dave, I think that's part of it that's going on in the college admissions scandal, but there's another part. Because if you're right about the seculosity of work, and everyone is working so incredibly hard, then those who have children probably feel really guilty about not spending more time with their kids, and if they've worked really hard and earned a lot of money, well, one way they can atone, one way they can expiate that guilt is by buying them into college. It's a form of love, as we know, but it's also in a form of atonement, payment. And I, 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 I thought, you know, I think there's something to it. But make no mistake: any scheme where salvation is reserved for those with the most impeccable track records is a religious scheme, and it may be unconscious, but that only makes the dynamics involved more dangerous. But diverting as some of these replacement religions may be, and I could go on. By the way, I've tried to—I I didn't want to talk about flat earthers or weed church—that's going—that's happening uh there's there's so much and it's it's kind of it, it can be really entertaining because i'm really i like this kind of stuff someone was talking to me about peloton the other day and they'd made a pilgrimage i love you guys but they'd make a pilgrimage to be with that one guru who's really preaching and they said that's exactly what's going on dave and i i get it i want to look good diverting as some of these replacement religions may be they unfortunately they turn to dust under the burdens of human suffering In light of sin and death, they look not just damaging, but incredibly lame. Because all strands of seculosity operate more or less identically. They're what we would call, in our parlance, religions of law. They cast a vision of a standard of enoughness and implore you to realize that vision with your hard work and your currency. Religions of law, As Alfie Cohn said today, they succeed in the short term because they appeal to our yearning for control, but they run out of steam eventually when confronted with the realities of human conflictedness. As Aldous Huxley said, the fact that you and I are both simultaneously the pillars and the dynamite in our own house. But the ultimate trouble with seculosity has actually very little to do with soulmates or smartphones or political tribalism or workaholism or even the compulsive desire to measure up. The common denominator, the common real trouble behind all this anxiety and loneliness and fear is the human heart. It's yours and mine, which is to say the real problem is sin. And sin is not something you can be talked out of. Sin is not something that can be reconceived or coached through with the right wisdom. It is something from which you need to be saved, even when the nature of sin is that it lashes out at that which would rescue it. And that's where all our narratives and religions and seculosities break down for good, even the ones of grace, because I do try to shed some light. There is some, some good stuff out there. But, but no concept or framework, no matter how beautiful or beneficial, is going to breathe new life into limbs sunk to the bottom of the ocean. A God who saves those hell-bent on stiff-arming his love is all that will do. Uh, that's... A lot of what I've tried to talk about when I'm doing the seculosity tour, but I thought I'd go a little further tonight since this is New York and, and you're you, we've just seen the yo-yo thing, so you've gotten that out of your system. The seculosity of hobbies or something like that. that, would, that that's my favorite. Um, what are the implications of this um, understanding that I'm trying to Get across in, in this book. Because a lot of people say, hey, you know what I find about this book? I've I, I read it and I think it's actually a great um, evangelistic tool. It's a way to talk to people. And I say, I, I think it actually is, but I wrote it for myself. And I also wrote it because I thought that the connections were so uncanny and it made me sad that no one was talking about it. But I, I think that there, the, 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 what are the implications here is that it, it, we are all in the same boat. Religious people and non-religious people are drawn closer together by showing how we are all working with similar impulses and are subject to similar emotional and behavioral patterns. To put another way, religion is not as weird as Christians fear it is. It really is a wow, we're all in the same boat idea. Secondly, I think that it, it gives us a lot of room to make the sort of connections that we've tried to pioneer and model through Mockingbird is that our secular labors for righteousness and uh, uh, really do have a direct correlation to our, our situation before God. If you want to make sense to someone who has no interest, is totally indifferent to any of this stuff, god's mercy and forgiveness incarnation atonement you can talk about their desire for enoughness and your own desire for that Uh, there's homiletical and hermeneutical power because no one who i've talked to about enoughness so far says i don't recognize that everyone's seen the lights go on to extent that i'm a little relieved you know I thought, I really hope I'm not just going up a, up, 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 a, up a tree here. Thirdly, it allows for humor. Because there is something inherently funny about how powerful the religious impulse is. Especially this righteousness impulse. In that it ends up latching onto things like debates over the relative morality of uh, the diff- consuming different kinds of vegan yogurt. Or the way that the super rich worry about the size of their super yacht. These are kind of funny in a way that like traditional forms of righteousness like infidelity and murder, those aren't funny. <laughs> the small our religion ones are kind of funny. At least they're funny when, I, when people point them out to, to, to people who aren't me. But what do I, where do I end the book? Where do I, 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 where do I land with this thing? Because I think that uh, I'm going to give you the spoiler alert about the end. I do try to, say, to try to spell out what it might look like for Christianity to function not as just another form of seculosity, not as another Jesus land, another place to uh, attain and assert and earn your enoughness, but as a religion of real grace, that that, that majors on mercy and is a place where people receive their enoughness rather than than try to uh, establish it. Prescriptions, as we all know, are a fool's errand, but predictions are another matter. And I think first for Christianity to be experienced again as a religion of grace, actually take out the word again, because I don't know how it's been experienced. As a religion of grace rather than law, it would have to speak about death more than it currently does. People sometimes ask, why do you guys talk about death so much on Mockingbird? And I say, well, um, what else is there? You know, it's being... <laughs> it, it, That's what's coming. Connor Gwynn, I can't wait till you guys get to hear that talk today. But Christians have got to be, religious people have got to be just as willing to speak about the hereafter or the resurrection as the here and now. Faith as a means to personal or social improvement has to take a back seat to the more transcendent and eternal elements of capital R religion, of which there are so many. In other words, such a religion wouldn't simply talk about God, but to God. Because ears habituated to the weary tune of never enough don't need fresh sheets of music. They crave the melody of absolution itself a song that's emotional but not sentimental, personal but not individual and never bashful about the liberating wind of the Holy Spirit. But secondly, a viable Christian faith, as I see it, would be one that follows Christ's lead by focusing its attention on human motivation rather than behavior. You see why I wanted Alfie to talk today? So You're all putty in my hands. <laughs> uh, which means it would remember its own counsel That each of us, whether we're in the pews or not, is in bondage to forces outside of our own control, whether they've inherited or assumed or some combination thereof. Schopenhauer apparently put it this way, that a man can do what he wills, but he cannot will what he wills. And that's, the, the, that's simply a paraphrasing of the Pauline understanding, according to Ashley Knoll, that what the heart desires, the will chooses, and the mind justifies, that none of us are free agents making healthy decisions. And any message that addresses us as such will prove no more than a clanging symbol in the long run. Furthermore... A Christianity that would be viable would understand that the not enoughness that haunts you and I is not an entirely false construct. We are not crazy for feeling on some fundamental level that we are, not, that we are in fact sinners. If you want to th- thera- thera- like make it more psychological, you could simply say that everyone you meet is in some kind of pain. A swimmer caught in a riptide, sometimes of their own making. Third and finally, I think a grace-centered Christianity would be fundamentally Christ-centered. Sounds like a no-brainer, but what I mean is that it won't be consumer or church-centered. As one of my favorite theologians is fond of saying, you can tell that the church has nothing of substance left to say when it starts talking primarily about itself. Instead, a religion of capital G grace would hold to Jesus Christ as the central revelation of who God is. And the cross is the central revelation of who Christ is. Not just in terms of sacrificial love, but in terms of law-fulfilling righteousness imputed to non-transformed sinners like you and me. For this reason... A grace-centered Christianity viable to you and I stuck in secularity, would not balk from heralding at full volume and without fingers crossed the good news that nothing that needs to be done hasn't already been done. It would emphasize the counterintuitive announcement that enoughness is a gift given freely to those who insist on paying and at great cost to the giver. The only scorekeeping That matters in this light has come to an end, regardless of how you and I might feel at the moment. So that's the hope of this book. Maybe yes, it is an evangelistic tool. Yes, it is a uh, a social—you know—a work of social criticism. Um, But if it does any kind of work, I hope it is something that makes a person feel understood but not as a discerned, I think is how Jeff Mallinson put it today, not judged, and brings to bear in light of that undying and uh, pain-inducing project of establishing your own enoughness out of the squeezing the water out of the rocks of the world. Well, maybe in that place, that could be where true religion is to be found. So that's what I'm trying to get across. And uh, we, I, want to, I want you to buy the book, so I'll stop talking. Um, thank you for listening, and uh, Godspeed.